The IRS has canceled its use of facial recognition technology for taxpayers to log on, and that's having a ripple effect on ID verification at other agencies. The IRS's one-time vendor, ID.me, says it will make facial recognition optional for the nine other agencies it does business with. But agencies still have the need to counter fraud. We get more now from Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Facial recognition is a sensitive subject in government, one that faces a lot of scrutiny from Congress and the public. And yet agencies are getting a lot more accustomed to using these tools. The Government Accountability Office found last year that at least 18 agencies are using some form of facial recognition. That covers everything from physical security and federal law enforcement to identity verification on government websites. That last example is becoming a lot more common, both in and out of government, as more public-facing services move online. A lot of these use cases fly under the radar, but those that fall into the spotlight get a lot of pushback. One of the challenges, I think, with digital identity is this kind of a weird, esoteric issue that a lot of people don't really think about much. That's Jeremy Grant. He's the Managing Director of Technology Business Strategy at Venable and the lead of the Better Identity Coalition. He's also a former senior executive advisor for the Obama administration's National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace. For an issue that doesn't get a lot of public attention, the scrutiny came down hard on the IRS. The agency received more than half a dozen letters from the House and Senate lawmakers on the issue. Some asked the IRS for more information about its plans for facial recognition technology. Others demanded the IRS pull the plug immediately on using this technology. For some context here, the IRS got all of this attention earlier this month, even though it announced publicly that it was doing this back in November. The IRS now says it's backing away from plans to use facial recognition technology meant to help taxpayers access information online. That ties up one loose end, but stopping fraud in the federal government is a cat-and-mouse game, and fraudsters are always looking for new opportunities. Agencies are seeing an uptick in improper payments from the trillions of dollars Congress authorized in COVID-19 recovery programs. And members of the public are demanding easier ways to get government services online. If there's anything agencies have learned getting COVID-19 recovery money out the door quickly, Grant says it's that they need to set a higher bar for digital identity. The evidence has been really clear. When you don't have identity infrastructure in place, the criminals are going to come in and they're going to steal a lot of money and a lot of data. That's a big concern as well. I mean, if you've ever been a victim of identity theft, I don't think there's anything that's more intrusive than having somebody out there who is racking up bills in your name and you are getting stuck with the consequences. Linda Miller is the former deputy executive director of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, now a principal at Grant Thornton. She says agencies right now are a mixed bag when it comes to the sophistication of their identity verification tools. But given the rise of improper payments from COVID-19 programs, Miller says all agencies need to up their game. Some are using much more sophisticated tools and some are using nearly no tools. So it's going to be really important to, to raise the whole level of verification and authentication across the board. So agencies that are doing nothing and are maybe at lower risk or like maybe they don't make a lot of payments, they might be okay with some multi-factor authentication or knowledge-based questions type authentication. Those agencies that are putting out large amounts of benefit dollars are going to need to move to more sophisticated tools like the biometric tools. What comes to mind are some of the big vendors, ID.me and login.gov. While all agency digital services strike a tricky balance between ease of access and security, the IRS in particular has dealt with both types of challenges in recent years. 
The IRS suffered a breach of its popular Get Transcript application in 2015, only a year after its launch. An agency investigation found that using sensitive information already in the hands of criminals, attackers were able to compromise about 390,000 taxpayer accounts. Grant says agencies that can't get identity right online are stuck keeping public-facing services offline. But that's hardly an option for the IRS. It's struggling with a backlog of about 5 million pieces of taxpayer correspondence. The National Taxpayer Advocate, in her latest annual report to Congress, says the agency's level of telephone service reached a low point last year, with only 11% of taxpayers getting through to a call center representative. Grant says that the IRS, given the situation, doesn't have a lot of great options. To a certain extent, I think agencies like IRS are in a bit of a no-win situation in that if they you know, put a digital service online that has lax security, they get you know, yelled at. And then if they take digital services down, and the only ways to do things are through the mail and through a call center, well, then they're going to get yelled at. If they, if they roll something up for identity verification that offers a higher level of security, but you know, has a component that involves you know, somebody submitting a selfie, we've seen the reaction there. The IRS isn't the only agency facing a higher demand for safe, effective digital services. Federal and state governments scrambled in the early stages of the pandemic to use new online systems to get unemployment insurance benefits to the public. But the Office of Management and Budget finds improper payments grew the most under this program more than any other program last year. So how have state and federal agencies dealt with this issue? Well, they actually turned to the company that brought the IRS under fire in the first place, ID.me. Grant says the vendor offered a solution that helped address this kind of fraud. We saw this at the start of the pandemic. States rushed out, you know, new online application systems to, you know, get pandemic unemployment assistance. And you saw organized crime just swoop in and steal tens of billions of dollars. I mean, this was why IDME had this big boom in business is they came to states and said, we've got a solution that can solve a lot of this. IDME counts 10 federal agencies and 30 states as its customers. It also recently announced a new option to verify identity without using facial recognition and will make this capability available to all of its public sector government partners starting March 1st. As far as alternatives, several lawmakers urged the IRS to consider Login.gov, a federal service already used by 40 million Americans, to securely access 200 websites from nearly 30 agencies. But Grant says Login.gov doesn't yet have the capability to handle identity proofing. Login has focused largely on account management and authentication, but not identity proofing, which is the much harder problem to solve. Again, this is not to say that, you know, it should be the private sector running this, but it's not as if there is like a magic set of capabilities just sitting at GSA that have not been used. You know, they're struggling with this just like every other agency right now. After what happened with IRS and IDME, the General Services Administration, the agency that runs Login.gov, says it currently doesn't have plans to implement facial recognition technology. While the use of facial recognition across the federal government remains a sensitive topic, Grant says the practice of scanning a driver's license and a passport and then taking a selfie is gaining traction across private industry. In fact, most of the agencies that GAO reached out to say their employees use facial recognition technology every day to unlock their government-issued smartphones. Grant says companies have adopted facial recognition in recent years after fraudsters caught up with knowledge-based authentication, the last major industry-wide standard to verify identity. What was rolled out was not like IRS was doing something that was unusual compared to what I think a lot of people might be asked to do for private sector transactions. I think what you know, certainly struck a nerve was it was requiring the use of a face biometric for government application, which was something that people were not used to. And 
that, you know, has now set off, I think, you know, what is a, a good discussion around, well, what is the appropriate technology or, you know, set of technologies? But there aren't easy answers here. As for Path Forward, Congressman Bill Foster last year introduced the Improving Digital Identity Act. The bill would set up a task force of federal agencies and state and local governments to figure out how government can best support digital identity services. The Better Identity Coalition supports the legislation, and Grant says the bill needs to move forward as quickly as possible. At the very least, he says Congress needs to come together on some consensus on how agencies should rethink identity verification. This is not to say that any one solution is the wrong one or the right one, but I think there is a bigger trade-off that you know policymakers need to be considering right now, which is what kind of services do you want your constituents to be able to access online? And understanding that offering any high value service where an agency is going to disclose personal data or make money available is going to be a huge target for organized crime. What sorts of solutions are you willing to consider letting agencies use to offer those services in a way that is secure, that is equitable, that protects privacy? Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Ever wonder why people don't get the care they need? Why their care isn't the best it can be? Ever wonder if home care could be as safe and effective as hospital care? So patients get hospital-quality care during home treatment. Ever wonder if you could drive out waste so organizations could save billions? Health needs the power of wonder and bold ideas in pharmacy, care, and benefit solutions. Ever wonder who can do that? Wonder no more. Evernorth brings wonder to health services. Learn more at evernorth.com.